We pick it up here at verse 4, Romans 4, 4. After saying that Abraham, the, the ancestor, physical ancestor of the people, was not justified by works, but was justified by faith, he begins to explain it some more in verse 4. The contrast between works and faith. Verse 4. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. He presents a scenario of someone who works. When he says works, he's not talking about the fruit of faith. He's not talking about how we live our life, Christian life, in godliness and in righteousness. He's talking about those who want to accumulate works in order to earn salvation. He's talking about that which is prior to conversion. Prior to conversion, people, when they think about life and the afterlife, they believe, people believe that if they do good works, or at least one good work that is superior to others, other people's good works, or whatever they think and imagine in their mind, then they will receive salvation. These are the works he is addressing here in verse 4. The works that people accumulate or think that they can accumulate in order to earn salvation, to receive salvation as a wage or the result, a salary at the end of a hard day's work. That's the analogy he's presenting here in terms of a wage at, at the end of the day. That's why he says, now to the one who works his wage, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, not reckoned as a gift, not reckoned as grace. Because if you work all day long, the agreement is if you work, then you should receive a wage, some income, a salary, some earnings based on what work you did. That's the way the world works. That's the law of working and receiving compensation from work. Everybody knows that that is the case. It's the case everywhere. So it's not a favor, it's a wage. It's not grace, it's a wage. It's not a gift, it's a wage. That's the argument he makes because he says it is what is due. It's due. Wages are due to the laborer. But in reference to salvation, in reference to how we are saved, it doesn't work that way. There is no accumulation of works that will one day be presented before God for God to say on the day of judgment, you know, you did these many good things and you avoided these many evil things, therefore come into heaven. It does not work that way. Though many people believe that's the way it works, it does not work that way. In verse five, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. He contrasts verses four and five, but to the one who does not work, and he means does not work in the sense of verse four, does not work as a wage, does not work to uh, obtain what is due to him. If he doesn't work in that way, he does not mean one who does not produce good works as a result of salvation. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the works of works salvation or works righteousness, which it, 
doesn't work that way. The Bible does not teach it that way. In contrast, verse five, instead of working for salvation, verse five, it says, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. Instead of working for salvation, we need to believe in him who justifies. We have to believe in him who justifies. Believe in God as Abraham did in verse three. Or in chapter three, verse 26, he says, 326, for the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. If we have faith in God, or more specifically, faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that is what justifies us before God. That's what declares to, before God that we are righteous. We have nothing to offer him. He's already eliminated that in verse four. We have no good works to offer to God for our salvation. Instead, all we have is our faith in Christ. That's all we have. And when I say that's all we have, I'm not minimizing it. I'm saying it, that in an exclusive way. That's the only thing that will be acceptable in the sight of God. That is faith in Christ. Believe in Christ. Faith and belief are the same, synonyms of the same. That is our need to trust in Christ, what he did in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection on our behalf. Now, the object of faith in verse five, uh, verses three and five, it is generally God, meaning our God, not any God of the world, our God, but then more specifically, it is faith in Christ. Although his, this chapter from the beginning all the way to verse 23 is focused on the need for faith, the need for true faith, and not depending on works, he does not mean to say that this faith is a vague, ambiguous faith. He does not mean to say it's okay to have faith in anyone, whoever the God you want to believe in. He does not mean that at all. He's already said in chapter 326, for example, a recent example is 326, the one who has faith in Jesus. It's necessary to have faith in Jesus. At the end of chapter four, 424, he says, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him, that is believe in God, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. The apostle is teaching us here that we believe in what God says is the means of our salvation or the agent of our salvation. The means is to believe in Jesus, the agent or the mediator of our salvation. This is what God declares through his servants, the prophets, and also his servants, the apostles. He declares it from Genesis to Revelation. This is what we must believe, that Jesus died and rose again for our salvation because he was perfect, sinless, 
who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, 1 Peter 2, 22, because he was that way and died on the cross, not for his sins. Remember, we die because we sin. He never sinned, but he died. So why did he die? For our sins, if we believe in him. This is how we are justified or declared righteous. Though we are criminals before the God of heaven, we are declared righteous. We are vindicated, exonerated, justified in the sight of God in spite of our sins, our criminal sins against the judge of heaven. Why? Because God receives us based on the righteousness of Christ, his perfection, his holiness, his godliness. And then in verse five, what kind of a person does God justify? What kind of a person does he justify? Does he justify all of the godly people of the world, all the righteous people of the world, all the good people of the world, whatever we might define as godly, good, holy, religious people, spiritual people, is that the kind of person God justifies in verse 5? Not exclusively. What's that? Not exclusively. No, not, not that way. Um, he justifies ungodly people. You see, when people, philosophies and religions define themselves as good or godly, holy, religious, spiritual, when they use these words to describe themselves, they're using their human definitions, not a godly or biblical definition. Because in the sight of God, everyone, no matter how good he is on the outside, no matter how much civil good he does, right? He, he doesn't cause trouble to his neighbor. He lives in his house in peace. Well, he's doing good, that's civil good, and that's fine and good, it has its place. But we can't say on the basis of that, that he's a godly man in the sight of God. No, he's ungodly still because of our sin. We're still ungodly no matter how religious and spiritual we are in the sight of God and we therefore must be justified. Remember what Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Not the righteous, not those who are worldly righteous, or however in a human definition, a human meaning and understanding of it, people who think they're righteous, and they may be righteous compared to other people, but he didn't come to call people like that, people who are self-sufficient in their righteousness. He came to call people who are acknowledging their sin, acknowledging that they are ungodly, and he calls them to repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the message he preached and which we should preach too. So that's the kind of person, the ungodly, because every single one of us is ungodly in this definition, in this sense, until we are converted. Then we become godly. We begin to become godly because we are reckoned or credited with righteousness from the time of our conversion until the time of our death, until we meet Christ face to face. And his perfection is reckoned to our account, credited to our account. Like the uh, tax collector beating his chest. Like the tax collector, yes. Let's turn to there, to that passage. Like the tax collector beating his chest. 
Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, 9 to 14. Luke 18, 9 to 14. And he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Remember, we were talking about the religious man, somebody who is, compared to other people, righteous or godly in comparison to other people, but not in the sight of God. And this is the way they behave. They say they fast, they pay tithes, and then they compare themselves to others. They are not swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or like a tax collector who's collecting taxes for the Roman government from the Jewish people. And some of them did it in a corrupt way. Well, we can't compare ourselves to others. The one who understands like this tax collector, he's unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven because he knows it's, he is a shameful man. He knows his sin. He's beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Beating his breast as though if he could or if he would, he might even kill himself, harm himself. But no, he realizes that he needs the mercy of God. He is such a worthless person, he beats his breast. He believes that because of his sin. Not because he's not created in the image of God. Not because he's an animal. Not because he's a tree. He's not thinking that way. He's thinking because of his sin. Because of his sin before a holy God. He needs the mercy of God and he acknowledges that he's a sinner, ungodly. And what's the result of this? Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. You see, he had faith in God, God's provision in Christ. That's why he went home justified. He went home justified rather than the other one because of his humility. True faith produces humility because we recognize our sin. Yes, so thank you for reminding us of that example from Luke 18. Okay, then Romans 4, verse 5. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. That's a summary of what he's been saying. Remember, he has said faith in Christ, faith in Jesus. This is what he means. Now, he's not saying that the act of faith, the exercise of faith in and of itself 
is noble or is the ground is the reason for his salvation. He's not saying that this faith is something good that the man does that originates within himself. He's not meaning it that way. Because if it is something that originates in himself, if faith is something that everybody has, it originates in oneself, and it's just up to us to exercise that faith to be acceptable in the sight of God, then we have something to boast about. Right? Because then it would be something we present to God and say, God, I have faith, therefore, because I exercise faith and the man next to me did not, I deserve to go to heaven. He's already eliminated that possibility in chapter 3, verse 27. 3, 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. He has, in verse 27, eliminated the the possibility of boasting before God, of saying, God, I have faith, my neighbor does not. So when we are there at the judgment seat, take me into heaven, but you don't need to take this other one because he didn't exercise faith. There, we are making a distinction between one and another. And we can't do that. All we have is the mercy of God. We don't have our faith to present and say, God, I did this, therefore I should go to heaven. He's excluding that. So he's assuming that this faith is a gift of God that he works in us. He assumes when he's saying all this, that faith is a gift of God. It's not something that is common to every man. It is something that is exclusive to those that God has gifted, to those whom God has gifted. If God has gifted the faith, then one exercises the faith in Christ and he's justified and saved from sin. Remember, we have to make this distinction because it is commonly believed that everyone has a measure of faith. Keep your place in Romans 4. This passage in Romans 12, Romans 12 is often cited to say that every man, every individual, every person from the beginning of creation until the end of the world Every person throughout the world, whether he is in Christianity or outside of Christianity, every person has been given the gift or the measure of faith, true faith. People teach that. And they teach it based on Romans 12, where we find this phrase. Romans 12, 3 to 5, or 3 to 8. Let's read 3 to 8. Romans 12, 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Okay, that's the oft-cited expression. 
God has given or allotted to each a measure of faith. People cite this, but incorrectly. They cite it incorrectly. They cite it to prove that every person in the world has true faith that he must exercise to save himself. But this is not talking about every person in the world. Look at verse 4. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Does he mean every individual in the world? Or is he talking about the body of Christ? He's talking about the body of Christ. It becomes very clear in verses five to eight. He means one, he says in verse five, one body in Christ. The body of Christ, everyone in the body of Christ has been allotted or gifted a measure of faith. That's what he means. Also, turn to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter three. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 to 5. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we may be delivered from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. Not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. And may the Lord direct your hearts also into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Do we see here a distinction between the us, the we, and the you in comparison to the perverse and evil men, right? He makes it quite clear, especially in verse two, that not all have faith, not all have true faith. There are perverse and evil men, but God does grant to the you, the us, the we, to have this true faith and not only to have it, but he'll strengthen us and protect us even from the evil one, from the devil. And we will continue in the steadfastness of Christ, persevering from the beginning of true faith until the end of true faith, that is, until we see Christ faith, uh, face to face when our faith will no longer be necessary. Love will be lasting forever and ever, but 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, now remain faith, hope, love but then only love remains. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So that's the faith that he says reckons as righteousness in Romans 4, verse 5. Okay, now 
before we proceed to verses six to eight, before we go on, um, are there any other examples, either of people, individuals, or verses that reiterate the truths we have just studied in verses four and five? Anyone want to add to this study in that way? Romans 6.23. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, why did you cite that? Romans 6.23. It sort of sums up verses 4 and 5 in one simple verse. Okay. It says, your works have earned you death. Yes. The evil works, the sin. Okay. Okay. So Romans six twenty three actually summarizes Romans four four and five in one verse. Remember, if we are depending on our works, the only wage our works will produce is death. But who wants to have death at the end of the day? No, nobody. But the free gift of God. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Right. It's a free gift, not a wage. Another passage or another example. uh, The sacrifices of Cain and Abel. The sacrifices of Cain and Abel. Yes. Um. To illustrate that, the sacrifices of Cain and Abel, we'll need to go to two places to confirm the correct interpretation of that. The first one is Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4, and we'll pick it up. At verse 1, we'll read 1 to 5, 1 to 5. Now, the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Actually, let's also read further to verse seven. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. The reason for reading verses six and seven, Cain becomes angry and God confronts his anger by saying, if you do well, if you do not do well. Now those questions or those statements are meant to, imply, assert that Cain knew the right way. He knew the right way, but he did not act upon it. He knew the right way, just as Abel knew the right way, but Abel did act upon it. Now, you cited 
Cain and Abel, why did you cite them? Because it, it highlights um, that not everyone has faith, as we were talking about. It was gifted to Abel versus Cain, and then Cain is upset because his sacrifice was to him a greater work to God, but he didn't have faith. He lacked faith, so his works were okay. Meaningless. Okay, so in the, this example, Cain lacked faith, and he lacked the proper sacrifice because he lacked faith. Abel had faith, therefore Abel brought the proper sacrifice. How do we know that there is both the faith of Abel, which resulted in the proper sacrifice, and then the lack of faith in Cain that resulted in the wrong sacrifice, the improper sacrifice? How can we know that God is indeed highlighting the faith of the one and the offering, the lack of faith of the other, and, and also the improper offering because of the lack of faith. Yes? Hebrews 11.4. Now, before we read Hebrews 11.4, which was going to be our second passage to interpret this, it actually does say in Genesis 4, 4 and 5, the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. Why for Abel? Because he had faith, true faith for Abel and for his offering. But then it says in verse five, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. That shows that the faith of Abel is why he says for Abel. This is confirmed in Hebrews eleven four, which says, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Right there. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained a testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, that through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Yes, Yes. very good. All right. I have a comment about, uh, you know how the Bible teaches common grace and saving grace? Uh, when Paul went to Athens on Acts 17, he spoke to people who were worshiping an unknown God. So can that be an example of people having faith in something that will not save them? Like uh, not saving faith or... Yes, yes, okay. Acts chapter 17, when Paul went to Athens and the people were worshiping idols. They had faith in their idols, but they did not have saving faith because they did not believe in Jesus Christ to save them. They believed in their idols to save them. So they did have a kind of faith, but they didn't have true faith. They had a faith that's common to everyone, that they believe in something, but they didn't have true faith, which would have been Believing God in Christ. That's what they lacked. And that's why it was necessary for the apostle to preach to them in Acts 17.30 to preach to them Christ. Acts 17.30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man 
whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. He told them they needed to repent because they lacked true faith, true saving faith. So this summed up in Matthew 7, from 22, all the way down. Okay, yes, that's also found in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, we have another example of a false faith. It's faith in some sense, but it's not true faith. It's a false faith. We, we say false faith and bogus belief. That's what they had right here in Matthew 7. He explained that we need to enter the, the narrow and the small way, right? Narrow way, small gate. And then he speaks of us showing our fruits. We, we see it in verse 20. So then you will know them by their fruits, 720. Then here, these are the horrifying words that should never be pronounced against us. 721. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's in verse 23. I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, someone might say in verse 22, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform many miracles in your name. Do we have examples of people in the Bible doing this, but being unbelievers? Judas. Judas Iscariot. Matthew 10, 1 to 4. Judas is named among the rest of the 12. And he's named there, and he has authority to cast out demons and heal people of diseases and even to preach the gospel. They are sent out to preach the gospel in Matthew 10. So Judas Iscariot is one example. But are there other, other unbelievers who had abilities but were not true believers, never saved at all? Bar Jesus. Okay, there's a certain man named Bar Jesus. Now, this, this would be somebody who's... He's mentioned in um, Acts 13, Acts 13, verse 6. Acts 13. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, the same Bar-Jesus, for thus his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? And then he's punished with blindness. Now, 
he's a Jewish false prophet, which if he's a Jewish false prophet, he's going to use biblical words from the Old Testament. He's going to use those words and perhaps even mix it with whatever new theology he has learned. So he would be another example. Simon the Magician, Acts chapter 8. Simon the Magician also, and Simon is another Jewish name. So he is likely also using the name of the Lord, but he's a false convert because Simon was baptized, it says in Acts chapter 8, a false convert. So there are many examples like this throughout Scripture that this is very possible. And Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, That's why the scripture also says, you will know them by their fruits, verse 20. It's not just the miracles, it is the godliness. Are they doing the will of the Father in heaven? Are they practicing righteousness? Because the miracles can be either true miracles, like in the case of Judas Iscariot, or of the man of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians 2, all false wonders and signs because he's controlled by Satan. It could be one or the other. In whatever case, it's possible to perform miracles and still be a son of the devil. Whether a true miracle or a false miracle, be a son of the devil. And that's what we have to be on guard for, right? Like it says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this study. Thank you that we are saved based on your grace, based on the gift of faith you give to us, based on you sending your one and only Son, only begotten Son, to live perfectly, to die on the cross, to pay for our sins. Thank you for Christ and thank you for what we believe. Encourage us and strengthen us in the faith and may we have this steadfastness of faith until the very end. By your grace and may we, Lord, anticipate the hope that is set before us. In Christ, amen.